Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read this text. Romans, chapter 8. We're going to read verses 31 through 39. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer? Lord, we pray that you would allow this text to get through to us today. Teach your people by your spirit. We pray that you would take these facts and light them on fire. That we would have the learning and the burning, as they say back in the black church. That you would help these truths to be flammable in our souls And that they would energize new obedience, new faith, new hope, and new love. So Lord, bless us. Be present in our midst to transform us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1799, one of the most famous artifacts in archaeology was found. It was the Rosetta Stone. And this artifact was inscribed with a decree by Egyptian priests about the new reign of King Ptolemy V over Egypt. And the reason why it was such an important archaeological find is because it became the key to interpreting the unknown language of Egypt, hieroglyphics. And not only did the Rosetta Stone become a key to understanding a language that no one ever understood before, but by understanding this language, it gave them insight and access into an unknown world. The Rosetta Stone was the interpretive key. Now, as Elder Kinney just prayed and shared with us, there's a lot in our lives that's difficult to understand. There's a lot in our world that's difficult to understand. And often what we do in these difficult circumstances is something that therapists call catastrophizing. We read into the circumstances and scenarios 
the idea that the worst case scenario is the most likely scenario. We look at the circumstances and conclude that the worst possible scenario is the most likely scenario. We interpret through the lenses of despair, fear, and cynicism. Have you ever looked at the circumstances of your life and begun to ask questions, begin to wonder, to feel off balance or off kilter? I think we can all say yes to that. But what we have in the scriptures, what we have in the gospel, what an individual gets when they are united to Christ by faith is a key to interpreting the unknown difficulties and challenges of this life. The gospel is the Rosetta Stone of the Christian life. And the interpretive key to the difficulties that we face in our own lives and the difficulties that we face in the world. And the picture of the gospel, the picture of God's salvation that we get in scripture, is that it opens up in an entirely new world to those who have become united to Christ. We have an entirely new lens on the way in which we read our current afflictions and the current struggles that we face, the losses that we experience, the disappointments, the difficulties, the disappointments, the disappointments. I just made up a word. But I'm going to help us this morning by taking us to the Rosetta Stone that is the gospel. And the reason why this is important is because the payout when it comes to all of these difficult circumstances and all of the hard things that we experience in life and all of the hardships that we face and the questions that we ask is that they hit us on a most important point in our lives, and that is the point of assurance. Will God rescue me? Has God rescued me? Am I in? Am I secure? Will God complete the job? Has he even started the job in me? Because everything around me is saying something else. Everything around me is whispering in my ear. He's not there. Not coming. You're on your own. You better start trying harder and figuring things out because it's all on you. No one's providing. No one's sustaining. No one cares. Look after you and yours. That's what our troubles whisper in our ear. But this morning, we come to one of the most profound and beautiful passages of Scripture. And it has everything to do with our assurance of salvation. And so this morning, we're going to look at assurance from two points. The doctrine of assurance. It's an important doctrine as we unpack an understanding of what it means to be saved. The doctrine of salvation. This is one of the mountain peaks in the mountain range called Union with Christ. It's called assurance. And what we're going to see this morning is assurance in the face of accusation and assurance in the face of separation. Assurance in the face of accusation and assurance in the face of separation. 
So let's begin with our first point where we see assurance in the face of accusation. Now here's the deal. At the very beginning of our passage, we're given a very important signifier. If you look at the text, verse 31, Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? What things is he referring to? Well, just before this passage, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, somebody say all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these things, what, what do we say to these things? That's the immediate referent. But in a bigger and fuller sense, biblical commentators tell us that these things refers to everything that Paul has been saying throughout the book of Romans up to this point. One scholar says that this is the celebration at the end of an argument one. This, he has made his case for the gospel. And now he's celebrating this rock-solid case that he has made for the gospel. What are these things? He starts off and he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's why it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's his theme for the entire letter in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. But then he has, to, he has to give you the bad news before he can give you the good news. It's like this. When I went to go buy an engagement ring for my wife, Vanessa, I went looking all around. I was trying to get, get, a, get a fresh diamond. You know, I, I was up on those four C's, and I, I was trying to, trying to get the right kind of diamond, and, and uh and she's standing up. It got so good to her right now. She's remembering back. But I went, and every time I would look at the diamonds, they would lay out a piece of black felt. The jeweler would lay out the black felt, and then he would put the diamond down. And I would say, I finally, after a few times of that, I said to one of the jewelers, I said, why is it that you lay down the black felt before you put the diamond out and show me the diamond? He says, because you will not appreciate the diamond if I don't lay the black backdrop down. And so what Paul does in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 19, is he lays down the black felt for us. He says, you need to understand that all of humanity lies under the dominion of sin. We're all toe up from the flow up. From the inside to the out. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, we're idolaters. We are willing to exchange the glory of God for a lie. We're willing to worship the creation rather than the creator. Things look bleak when you look out at humanity. 
He lays it down, and at the end of it, he says, let me give you the summary. There is none righteous, not even one. No one's looking for God. No one is seeking for justice. Everyone has turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The venom of vipers is under their lips. With their mouths they deceive. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And it's like, bam, bam, bam. It is laying us low. But then, then he turns to the good news. Then he turns to the good news that there is a righteousness that comes apart from the law. A righteousness by faith. A righteousness that's from the outside. A word of affirmation and righteousness over our lives, even when we look inside and we see everything's broken. It's received by faith, a new standing, a new status, a new identity. We are justified. God speaks his words of acceptance over our lives. And then he continues to make the case. He goes back to Father Abraham. Father Abraham, this, is, this was the truth with Father Abraham. He was righteous by faith as well. And then he gets that and he says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. And then he develops this and he talks about all uh, humanity's broken into two categories. Those who are in Adam, those who are in Christ. There's no in between. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all live. And he says, here's, here's the summary of justification. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. And then he says, but there are implications when you have been saved in this way. Grace does not produce people who are cavalier about sin. Grace does not just come in and forgive. Grace motivates and, and transforms. Shall we, shall we continue in sin if we have died to it? And then he talks about the way that grace initiates the waging of a war between us and sin and all the things that corrupt. And we fight and we battle, but we are now dead to sin. But we recognize that the residue of sin is still in us. And then Paul gets to chapter 7 and he begins to flesh out autobiographically his own struggle with sin. And he gets and he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he begins to unfold this. And then he says, by the spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. We are now living life in the spirit. Chapter 8. But also in chapter 8, he says this. I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's suffering now. The whole world is groaning, longing for renewal. We look out, there are famines. We look out and there is destruction. We look out and there are wildfires. We look out and there are shootings. We look out and there is evil. It seems unstoppable. Evil has come upon us. We groan, the world is groaning, but we too are groaning. We struggle. There is suffering. There's our own internal struggles with sin. There are the external realities we see in the world. This stuff shakes us. 
And we need the Holy Spirit, Paul says, to come in and bear witness to us that we are adopted, that we are children. He recognizes that we're going to struggle to believe that we're loved, that we're going to struggle to believe the goodness of the gospel. He gets to the, to the back part of chapter 8. And he says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So he's talked about suffering. He's talked about, about groaning. He's talked about weakness. And all this comes after laying out the gospel, the struggle with sin, sanctification. Now he's getting to life in the Spirit and the hope of glory. And now in our passage for this morning, he says, what do we say to these things? There's righteousness through faith, but there's struggle. There, there is transforming work of God in our lives, but there is suffering. I have doubts. I have hard days. People I love go through hard things. What do we say to these things? And then Paul gives the most astonishing summary of the gospel. God is for us. God is for us. And he frames it in a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be successfully against us? There are indeed people who are against us. There are circumstances that are against us. There are trials and struggles that are against us. But none of them can be successfully against us. Because God is for us. Yes, sir. God is for us. Recently, there was an author by the name of Eugene Peterson who died. He had a wonderful career of writing and ministering to ministering to those who, who do ministry and trying to help them to understand what it looks like to live this life and to do the work of ministry. And his son, uh, his son did a reflection at his funeral. And essentially, I can't find it, but this is what he says. He says, you guys don't know that dad had everybody fooled. He had everybody fooled because throughout his 29 years of ministry, he only had one message. He only had one message. It was one message throughout 29 years of ministry. One message that was in all of his books. And his son says, one message that he used to come into our bedrooms and whisper over us while we slept. God loves you. God is for you. He's coming after you. He is relentless. God loves you. God is for you. He's coming after you. He is relentless. That was the one message of Eugene Peterson. It was the one message of the Apostle Paul. It's the one message of Scripture to the people of God. God loves you. God is for you. God is coming after you. He is relentless. 
That's a message to live under. And in the beginning of our passage, if you if you listen to verses 31 through 34, what you hear is a judicial kind of context coming up. Do you hear that? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Condemnation. Judgment. The language of judgment. Accusation. He's bringing us into a courtroom scene. And what he is doing is he is seeking to successfully establish in our minds that the case has been dropped. The charges cannot stick. He's trying to bring us into this frame of mind for one primary reason. It is the point of attack of our greatest enemy. The enemy of our souls. We often understand him to be the tempter. But if you read the story of scripture closely, what you'll see is what emerges more is that he's the accuser. And so Paul is doing pastoral business with this frequent sense that we have of being accused. Many people think of the adversary primarily as tempter, but he's really primarily accuser. And Satan, listen, here's the dual way that he accuses. Satan accuses the believer before God, and Satan accuses God before the believer. I'm going to say that again. Satan accuses the believer before God, and he accuses God before the believer. And his goal is to slander each toward the other in order to disrupt communion. And he goes back and forth between the two to batter and abuse us relentlessly. It's bad enough to have to deal with the inner critic. You have an outer critic as well who pumps up and revs up your inner critic. This is how, this is how your, your adversary works. And the scriptures, listen, the scriptures say don't be ignorant of his schemes. Don't, don't sleep on them. Some traditions talk about them too much. And some traditions don't talk about them enough. But Jesus says he prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking that which he may devour. He wants to devour you so that there is nothing left of you. So that if your people were to go out in search of you, all they would find were some tattered clothing. No faith left, no endurance, nothing left to you. But this is how he works. He tempts us. And then when we give in to the temptation, he accuses us mercilessly. He mercilessly accuses us after he tempts us. He paints a picture in your mind in which you were absolutely unstable before the Lord because of your own failures. He assaults you at the point of assurance. Why? Because he knows that the primary way to wreck the life of the believer is to lead them to the conviction that God is not for them. That's the primary way he wrecks your life. He gets you to buy the lie that God is not 
for you. This is what it sounds like for Satan to accuse you before God. And you hear the accusation because you get to overhear the way that you're accused before God. How could you do such a thing? You really think God would be close to a person like you? Look at how swollen with pride and filled with lust you are. You better fix it up. You better cover it up. You better put the fig leaves on and grovel so that you can salvage this. Actually, it's probably not even worth trying to salvage. You're too far gone. Yeah, you should try harder. Try harder. Yeah, you should probably do some nice things this week. That'll make it better. And then after you do the nice things, you really think those nice things are going to make him love you? He plays us. He accuses us. You're hopeless. But this is what it sounds like for Satan to accuse God before you. And I would say this is perhaps the greatest point of vulnerability for the people in our congregation, for you. Look at how stressful your life is. Look at the difficulties happening to your loved ones. Look at how much is going wrong. Look at how your dreams and your plans for your life are not working out. This God can't be good. He can't be trusted. If he were good, he would fit into your plans because you're insightful and wise. How could God be good and deviate from your vision for life? You know, you are pretty smart. And it would be so unjust of God to not conform to your plans. How could he not jump when you say jump? How could he possibly weave something good out of this mess? And every Christian who has their head on straight knows that this is the very logic that you could have used if you were standing at the foot of the cross on Good Friday. How can anything good come out of this? This is a tragedy. This is unspeakable atrocity. This is unjust. This is, a, this is, how could anything good come out of this? God can't be good. God can't be righteous. God can't be faithful. Look at this innocent man hung up on the cross. But you would be dead wrong. Because it was in this moment that the greatest good of the ages was being accomplished. It was in this moment that the greatest faithfulness of God was being demonstrated. It was in this moment that God was taking the bad, the ugly, the tragic, and he was turning it into eternal, immeasurable, unfathomable good. <laughs> and if he can do that in the life of Jesus, then he can do it in your life. In fact, that's the case that Paul is making. We follow the leader. He's the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. That's the good news that he's laying out for us. This is how Paul pastors us in this passage. He vindicates and celebrates everything that he has said up to this point. And he looks at the death and resurrection of Christ. Now listen, he says this. Listen to what he says. Catch this. If he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things? Yeah. 
All things meaning everything that pertains to your salvation. Everything that pertains to your growth and maturity in the faith. Everything that results in your everlasting joy and contentment and hope and solidity. Everything he will give to you and the down payment of that gift and generosity is Jesus himself. And then he goes on. He just, he, this is like Paul. Paul is getting so hype. He's like freestyling here. Okay? That's what he's doing rhetorically. Who, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. How are you going to come to the judge who justifies to accuse? He's already pardoned. He's already justified. He's already satisfied. You can't bring any charge against God's people. There's no charge to bring that hasn't been covered. The charges have been dropped. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And even more than that, was raised. Why does he say that? Here's why. The reason why he says that is because the resurrection is the receipt that says that his atonement has been accepted and that there is no longer any bill for those who are in Christ. The resurrection is the guarantee that the payment has been received. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. When I shop at Costco, I go up in that spot, I get all of the bulk items. I get everything. I go, Vanessa don't like to let me grocery shop anymore, but I'm, I'm the Lord's free man. I go, I go to Costco on my day off. I go in there, I get all the stuff. And at Costco, after you buy all this stuff, they give you this long receipt. You look like a bride walking the aisle with the train coming. I got this long receipt. And before they'll let me get out of the store, someone stops me and says, sir, can I see your receipt? And then they look at the receipt and they look in my basket. They look in the receipt. Then they draw a smiley face on it and say, have a good day. They have checked the receipt and they verify that everything that belongs to me is mine and I take it and it's paid for. The resurrection is the receipt that all of the benefits of Christ are ours. All of the good gifts of God are ours. We walk out of this life in this world into the fullness of resurrection hope. It's all ours. That's why he brings the resurrection. He died, but even more, he rose. Payment has been accepted, and God ain't about that double jeopardy where he charges the, the, the sins to Jesus and to you. God is just. <laughs> he cannot charge his elect because his son has paid for the sins of his people. End time judgment is past. And end time blessing has been poured out in the gospel. This is the concise summary of the gospel. God is for us. God is for us. In the face of accusations, you must cling to that word that God is for us. If you have cast your hope on Christ, if you're trusting in a righteousness that is not your own, if you claim Christ as your Savior and know that you can bring nothing to the table, 
Nothing in your hand you bring, simply to the cross you cling. Naked come to him for dress, helpless go to him for grace. Foul you to the fountain fly? If that's your story, then you bring this word against all accusations against you, and you bring this word against all accusations against God in your soul. God is for us. He's for us when we're not for ourselves. He's for us when we sabotage ourselves. He's for us when the money feels tight. He's for us when we don't know where our career is headed. He's for us when we're struggling to love our children. He's for us when we're waiting on that special someone to get down on bended knee to propose. He's for us when there are shootings in the neighborhood. He's for us when evil surrounds us in this world. He is for us. He's for us when we waver. We have assurance in the face of accusation, but we also have assurance in the face of separation, which brings us to our final point. Our assurance is grounded in the righteousness of Christ. Now, when we talk about assurance, the way that you, if you feel like you don't have assurance, the way you get assurance is not by studying assurance. It's by going to Jesus. It's only by going back to the ground of your salvation that you find assurance. If it was your goodness that didn't get you in, it's not your goodness that's going to keep you in and bring you to the end. The ground, we have to go back to the ground of our righteousness in Christ. We have to go back to the fact that we are loved by the whole Trinity. I'm going to say that again. We are loved by the whole Trinity. Because a lot of people have this vision of God where God is mad, but Jesus is somehow getting in between us and God. That's not the biblical picture. It was the love of God that constrained the sending of Jesus. Do you see this in the text? He who did not spare his own son, that's the father. The son who willingly submitted and gave himself for our sins. He who was willing to make atonement for our sins. It talks about the love of the father who gave. The love of the son who submitted and sacrificed for you. And just before this, it talks about the, the love of the spirit who works to convince you who is the expert witness to confirm your belonging to the family of God. The Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together in love to secure you. In order for you to be snatched out of the grip of God's love, the Trinity has to be defeated. And I'm going to tell you, the Trinity is undefeated. Undefeated. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are undefeated in rescuing people. I want to close with the testimony of Paul. Paul wasn't, wasn't being a travel agent. You know what travel agents do, right? They, they try to sell you tickets to places they've never been. You should go to Costa Rica. Yeah? Is it nice? Yeah. 
You been there? No, but I heard it's awesome. Paul is not a travel agent because at the end of his life, when he was standing before the Roman tribunal, he was in jail on trial for his life. He knew he was about to face execution as a martyr. This is what he said. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. For I know whom I have believed. I don't know a lot of things. I don't know algebra. I don't know calculus. I don't know biology. But I know whom I have believed. And I know he's able to keep what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's Paul's testimony. And, and this passage is just echoing the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, verses 8 through 9. This is what the servant of the Lord, Jesus, says. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. <laughs> this is what he's saying, and this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, they will all wear out, but he will remain. They will wear out like a garment, and this is what the Lord will do with them one day. All that accuse you. Where will they be on that day? Gone. Gone. But I'm going to close with the words of the psalmist. Listen to this and make this your prayer. Make this the longing of your soul that you would be able to share this testimony. This is what the psalmist says. He says to the Lord, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. And if the psalmist could say these words on that side of the cross, how much more can you and I say it on this side of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, pouring out of the spirit and promise of Christ's kingly return and his present intercession in the meantime? How much more can we say this I know that God is is for me. It doesn't matter if the people at the job are against you. God is for you. It doesn't matter if the circumstances in your life seem to say otherwise. The scriptures tell you God is for you. You might not be able to figure it out right now any more than they could have figured it out on Good Friday. But this we know that God is for us. He will bring us home to glory. We can rest assured in the fullness of his grace that he will not let us go that he will hold us fast, that you will sooner number the grains of sand on the seashore than you will number his many mercies toward you until that day when he makes all things new. 
You will sooner drain the ocean of its water than you will drain God of his mercy and grace toward you. He will keep you. He is for you. God loves you. He is for you. He's coming after you. He is relentless. Amen. Father, we give you praise. Lord Jesus, we give you praise. And Spirit, we give you praise that you keep us. That when we would be tempted to let go, when the accusations of this life rail against us and against you, that you keep us. That we can know, that we can know that you are for us. That you keep count of our tossings. That you know our struggles. But it's true that you had one son in this world without sin, but never have you had a child without suffering. Even as Jesus suffered, Lord, we pray for the grace to suffer and struggle and persevere, knowing that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us assurance. We pray, Lord, that we would follow Jesus and have our assurance strengthened and confirmed through communion with you. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one. Deliver us from evil and the evil one. We pray, Lord, that together we would encourage one another until that day when our faith becomes sight. So, Lord, we pray for your grace and your help in these ways. Bless your people to know the strength of your love in the gospel and to be changed by that love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.